1: Hey, everybody. I'm Trevor Noah, and you're listening to The Pantheon Network.
0: Hey, everyone, today on My Rock Moment, we have Roger Steffens. Now, Roger is a writer, actor, radio host, legendary reggae historian, and author of So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley, which Rolling Stone headlined in its review as arguably the best Bob Marley book ever. So that's quite a testament to Roger. And in speaking with him, I did quickly realize that this would need to be a two-part episode if we were going to cover all he's seen and done in the rock and reggae worlds. So in this episode, we'll discuss his time in Vietnam working in psyops while protest rock was erupting across the nation. We'll talk about his incredible story meeting the Countess de Bretagne in Marrakesh and how that connected him to the passing of Jim Morrison. And we'll also hear about the serendipitous circumstances that led to him meeting Bob Marley for the very first time. We're going to cover all this and a lot more in part one of our discussion today, so let's get started.
1: Why? Huh. Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing! Uh-huh! to me oh, I
0: roger i am so happy to have you on my rock moment
2: it's a great pleasure for me to be here i'm i'm first generation rock and roll i embody the whole history of it and i don't get a chance to talk about much uh, other than reggae these days but th- this is going to be a lot of fun for me
0: Oh, I know. Well, I want to. I want to touch on both sides, and I guess it's only fitting that we were connected through Harvey Kubernick. Yeah, Harvey Kubernick, who has been on the show before, is a rock journalist and author. But he's a good friend, and you guys have been friends for quite some time.
2: Long, long time. We've collaborated on a lot of projects over the years. I just admire him so much. He's he's very underappreciated here in L.A. He's done 20 books, many of them around uh, L.A.'s uh, rock history, and not one has ever been uh, reviewed in the L.A. Times. it's, It's a tragedy. He's better known in England than he is in L.A.
0: I know he is, and he's told me as much. And I have a number of his books which I've read. In fact, the reason that we met was because he found a picture of me holding one of his books.
2: Oh really?
0: <laughs> it's it's on my website. It's his book. Turn up the radio. Uh huh. Yeah. He and I talk about it in the in in our uh, in our discussion, which we did. Gosh, I don't know, if, uh, several months back. But um, that is how we connected. My picture got over to him, and he thought, "Who is this person promoting my work and holding holding my book here?" But um, since then, you know, it's it's been a bit of a kindred spirit type thing because yeah, he is a walking encyclopedia. Oh yeah. And it is him that, and I have to come out of the gate asking about this, because it is him that shared a story that you wrote about the late, great Tina Turner and Janis Joplin, and it is too good. You saw them in late 1967 at the Fillmore, and I would love for you to tell the story before we dive into everything else.
2: All right. There's the ticket for the show. Three
0: Three dollars.
2: Three dollars, <laughs> yeah, three dollars at the film for a triple bill. So I, I had been drafted in, at the beginning of May of 1967. I was almost 25. I almost beat it. But that was the year they put over 500,000 troops into Vietnam and they were taking everybody who wasn't halt or blind. And, um, I'm I'm leaving with three other army buddies for Vietnam at the height of the war. And our last night in America, we went to the Fillmore, where there was going to be a new British band making its debut that night. And uh, the opening act was Janis Joplin with the original Big Brother band. Mm-hmm. And I had been raised on Alan Freed and all his great rock and roll festivals and seen all the major figures in, in the 50s. And I had never seen anyone, maybe Jackie Wilson, who could compare to Janis Joplin. Janis was like a a, a raw nerve ending with a voice. And she did this amazing set of music and it just I'd never seen anything quite like that in my life. And then Richie Havens came out and sat in the middle of the dance floor with about 2,000 kids in a circle around him. Just him and his acoustic guitar just mesmerized us for about 45 minutes. And then Bill Graham comes out on stage, all apologies. And he says, um, I know you paid $3 to see three acts tonight, but Pink Floyd can't get out of customs in time. So I went to the Hungry Eye, and I got the band there to come and sit in for them. Please welcome Ike and Tina Turner. And Janice (laughs) comes racing out of the dressing room with a full bottle of Southern Comfort in her hand. And she stands beneath Tina for Tina's entire set, killing the bottle. And at the end of that set, she decides spontaneously to do a second unannounced set of music. And that was Bob Marley, my idol, notwithstanding, probably the greatest night of music I've ever seen in my entire life. And the next day I fly off to Saigon, literally with the soundtrack uh, in the plane playing, if you're going to San Francisco, wear some flowers in your hair, and I'm off uh, to to the war. So that, that was a, a pretty amazing way to go to war. Pretty
0: amazing. <laughs> I mean, you just gave me goosebumps about five different times during the course of that story. So, how, what was that feeling as you were going off to Vietnam?
2: Um, I've been in broadcasting since 1961. And when I got the draft notice, I was actor in residence at a woman's college in St. Louis. And uh, they, I, I, I didn't know anybody who had, who had even been drafted at that point. And I went to the local recruiters. This was in St. Louis. And uh, the guy asked me what I did. And I said, well, I'm an actor and I'm a broadcaster. And he said, well, if you sign up for an extra year, we'll put you in the radio and television division. And we don't have any stations in Vietnam. What he didn't say was yet. They were building nine. And so I signed up for an extra year because he promised me that and then after basic training they sent me to a stenography school in indianapolis
0: oh my gosh it
2: just so happened luckily enough to be the same little fort benjamin harrison where the radio tv school was dinfos the defense information school and that was the best training i've ever had in my life 12 intensive weeks and at the end of each week if you didn't pass the tests you got sent back to your unit and shipped off to Vietnam. So it was a powerful incentive to do good in school. And um, so um, the last week of courses, my orders had been to go to Eritrea in Ethiopia, home of Haile Selassie. And uh, I had my shots and visa and all set to go. And everybody's orders were canceled and we were shipped off to Fort Bragg to the Green Berets at the special JFK Special Warfare Center for three weeks of in, intensive indoctrination in PSYOPs, Psychological Operations, Propaganda Warfare. And they trained us, Amanda, with Nazi films. The first and last classes were the four-hour version of Triumph of the Will, the Nuremberg Rally film by Lenny Reifenstahl. They trained with nazi films and said now go to nam carry 80 pounds of loudspeaker backpacks into frontline combat operations and play surrender messages to the Viet Cong." and i got to saigon and they looked at my typing speed and my uh my iq and they said the colonel's typist is going home next week would you like to stay in saigon and live in the air-conditioned hotel across the street from headquarters or you could go out to the 9th Infantry Division into combat. <laughs> so I said, no, I'll, I'll go to the hotel. And then three three months later, the Tet Offensive broke out, and there were corpses on the sidewalk in front of our barracks every morning, and it was terrible. And I, I started a refugee campaign that ended up uh, raising over 100 tons of food and clothing, uh, particularly from Racine, Wisconsin, where I had read poetry in the schools, and everybody knew me. And They adopted me and i extended after my year was up to get an early out so i was in saigon for 25 months but worked all over the country from the dmz to the delta never fired a shot thank god then came back for a year and lectured against the war and at the end of 1970 i didn't want to be an american anymore i was so ashamed of the country so i moved to marrakesh and lived in the medina and uh, that led to my uh, learning before the world knew that Jim Morrison had died but we can get to that story later <laughs> i was with the people who probably killed him
0: oh my god that
2: but, but that's we're we're out of context the the rock and roll story really starts in 1953
0: Honestly, though, we're not out of context in the sense that I felt like what was happening from a political standpoint and in the music, just they were so parallel at that time. And Harvey may have told you, I don't know. But I teach a California rock history class uh, Mm. at Bradley University, and I try and impart the intensity of the time on these kids. You know, these kids are 21 years old, 20 years old. And I said, you know, you just graduated from high school a few few years ago. Imagine that feeling that the moment you graduate, you might be shipped off to fight in a war you don't support for a country that you're not feeling too much love for right now. That couldn't, nothing could be scarier at that time as as a young teenage boy. So my curiosity around you going to Vietnam, not supporting our involvement in the war, the music at the same time, I mean, protest rock was so big. and It was what was blaring from every radio station in the States um, and otherwise, and, and that feeling of being over there.
2: But of course, music was censored too. Uh, the AFVN station, Armed Forces Vietnam Station, In my off-duty time, uh, because a lot of my classmates had been assigned to the station there, uh, so I I hung out at the station in my off-duty hours and did several different things uh, in the course of my work there. Here's a great piece of trivia for you. Uh, You know Adrian Cronauer's story was told in Good Morning Vietnam, the Mm -hmm. DJ that Robin Williams played. Mm -hmm. And Everybody in that morning slot from six to nine o'clock who succeeded Cronauer had to scream at 6 a.m. Go <laughs> Some jerk in the barracks who would turn the radio all the way up and wake everybody up way too early. And so everybody hated the morning jock after that. And do you know who succeeded Adrian Cronauer? Who? Pat Sajak.
0: Pat Sajak? Jack
2: was the morning jock on AFVN yelling, good morning, Vietnam, and the aftermath of Adrian Cronauer.
0: Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wait, while you were over there, or maybe after you were over there, I read something about you wrote nine meditations on Jimi Hendrix and Nam. mm And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that. I think that was encompassed in a book, The Ultimate Hendrix.
2: The Ultimate Hendrix, yeah. And it's been reprinted several times in Vietnam anthologies. Um, Yeah, uh, Chris Salovich, who is a fellow Bob Marley biographer and really fine music writer in England, uh, put together a, a book on Jimmy's 50th birthday and asked me to contribute a piece about what his music meant to us in Vietnam. So, I did nine different meditations in various places that I encountered his music and how important it, it was to us. Yeah.
0: Of the nine, what, what most stands out to you? Or what was the most impactful, which might be hard to say?
2: I, I was in PSYOPS, and one of the things PSYOPS did was to drop uh, anti communist leaflets over remote areas of Vietnam from low-flying airplanes. And uh, I would go up on some of those missions and uh, drop thousands of leaflets through a hole in the floor of these little tiny airplanes called O2Bs. And uh, one day, uh, the pilot and I were listening to AFVN on our headphones as we were doing our mission. And we looked ahead, and maybe seven or eight miles in front of us there was an army base with two-story barracks and we saw a missile launched that came all the way over and hit one of the barracks and the whole barracks blew up and you could see you know it's far away but you could see what must have been people and, and, and debris flying into the air and um Hendrix is on AFVN at the same time singing, excuse me, while I kiss this guy, Uh, that, that cognitive dissonance just, I've never forgotten that moment. So I wrote about that too.
0: It was during your time in Vietnam that I think you picked up a camera as well, right? You started well,
2: documenting the, the, everything. The Tet Offensive in uh, beginning of February of 68, um, I wrote to friends in the States asking for help for the refugees who were living in front of my barracks in sewer pipes out on the street. Sewer oh. pipes that hadn't been laid yet. There were 52 families living in the sewer pipes. and Every day there'd be one or two corpses out on the street in in front of the barracks. So I wrote a letter to the editor of the Racine Journal Times, and he published it along with an editorial urging support from the students who had had heard me read poetry in the schools. I used to do a one-man show called Poetry for People Who Hate Poetry, and it was all living American writers and E.E. Cummings, who was too good to ignore, but Ferlinghetti, Corso, and and other beat writers. And I ended up doing that as a television show in 69 in Vietnam. Poetry for people who hate poetry with Staff <laughs> Sergeant Roger Steffens. And um, the, the the letter was published. And uh, two or three weeks later, two 5-ton trucks pull into the compound <laughs> with these huge steel connex crates, like nine feet tall crates, shipping crates, filled with my mail little tiny boxes, all addressed to me from people in Racine. And I went into the colonel's office and I said, sir, there's something outside you got to see. And he, I'm very busy private. I said, no, sir, you, you got to come outside. And he goes out and he sees these packages spilling out from the connexes. And he says, what the hell is that? And I said, well, I, I, I think it's my mail and it's, it's refugee supplies. And I promised my friends if, if they sent me stuff, I would personally distribute it so it doesn't end up uh, in the black market and i've got to send it all back because i'm so busy typing your letters all day come into my office Devons. he promoted me to spec four on the spot gave me my own concert hut told me i could go anywhere in vietnam from the dmz to the delta as long as i took pictures so i had bought a camera as soon as i arrived in saigon in november of 79 70 67 And uh, I knew I was in the midst of history, so I wanted to record it. And uh, he told me I could go anywhere in the country and work on any project I wanted, as long as I took pictures. So I shot over 10,000 frames when I was in Vietnam. And um, my, my daughter and I are working on my memoir now, which will include a lot of those pictures. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you have the the Family Acid Instagram account, and then you have several books as well, which is why I had to ask. You did the Family Acid, mm-hmm. and you did the Family Acid California, Family Acid Jamaica, oh. and then the Zine, Family Acid uh, San Francisco.
2: Wow, you, you've you done your research. Wow. Oh, no,
0: I have. In fact, I read a really great um, review, and I would have to pull up the article, but the journalist who reviewed the Family Acid book itself said, and this was beautifully said, so I, I have to read it. He said, The Family Acid is a hike into the heart of an unintentional darkness, and its nostalgia is a crippling necessity, which reminds us that to be a master of one's own destiny one need not unpack the fear that the high priests of our current society shit shovel at us on a daily basis. There was a different template for life, and it was not manufactured so long ago. Thanks be to the Mr. Steffens, and his progeny for reminding us that there was once an option. I thought it was beautiful... Review And I think it so aptly, of course, he's aptly telling and, of course, referring to the counterculture movement and, you know, that so deeply impacted the nation and its youth at the time in the 60s, that there was an alternate way of living, of relating to each other, of being, you know.
2: Well, you know, the 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 generation that was preaching peace and love got forced to go murder people, and that that was a scar on us for the rest of our lives. It really destroyed a lot of brilliant people. Yeah, uh, my roommate after the war for two years was Tim Page. This was the fellow that uh, Dennis Hopper played in Apocalypse Now, the mad photographer. Yes, The most wounded Vietnam correspondent who survived, he was blown up four times. The last time, he had the right third of his brain blown out the back of his head. And he was basically left for dead, but he didn't die. And he was in rehab for almost two years and and beat it. He just passed away last August at 78. He and Keith Richards are are miracles. (laughs) When he got out of uh, rehab, he, uh, he and I both got divorced in 73 from our first wives. And uh, he came and lived with me in my apartment in Berkeley, and he started to work for Rolling Stone. And Jan Wenner, the editor of Rolling Stone, put him together with Hunter Thompson on two assignments, after which Thompson went to Wenner and said, I can't work with this guy, Page. He's too crazy. Hunter That's Thompson.
0: saying something. <laughs> <laughs> <Right?
2: Yeah. laughs> he used, Tim used to have a button on his cap that said, drain damaged."
0: I can fully relate to that. <laughs> yeah, <right>? yeah.
2: <laughs> but he, he went on to do remarkable things and won all kinds of major journalism awards and was a UN representative all over the world. Fantastic man. You should... If you've never heard of Tim Page, just go to YouTube and put his name in there. He he was a really incredible guy. Hey,
0: guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back.
1: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them.
0: Talk to me a little bit about being in San Francisco just before heading off to war. You know, you you caught the last bit of the summer of love. I mean, what a time to be there. I I know that things at that point, things were starting to change a bit. You know, the real peace and love ethos that was so central to that region really had reached its apex in 65 or 66. You know, by the time the summer of love came, you you all were so impacted, not just by people that really, like I said, supported that ethos, but also wayward teens and lost souls and runaways. It was really a mix of people.
2: Yeah, we went to the hate and we went to some of the head shops and we looked around, but the streets were filled with homeless people and really drugged out hippies. It, It was... A lot different from what we had been reading about in Life magazine in their exposés of hippie. And, uh, <clears throat> but I, I I had been reading poetry for a living for a couple of years at that point. And so most of the people I knew in San Francisco were poets like Gene Fowler and Jerry Burns. And they took us up, my buddies and I, to Mount Tamalpais, uh, just across the bridge in Marin County. And uh, we went up there. Uh, just before the, the show at the Fillmore to a transcendent sunset, blood red sunset on top of a mountain. You saw the entire San Francisco Bay, the city, you saw the Pacific ocean and the purple mountains to the North. And that was, you know, for a farewell to America, I vowed if I made it through the war alive, I'd come back and live in the Bay. And I did, I did. Um, and the send-off was Janice Joplin and Tina Turner and Richie Havens. Couldn't have been a, a more difficult way to say goodbye to America, leaving all this behind. So I never got to see Hendrix. I never got to see The Doors. There were an awful lot of groups that I would have loved to have seen and then certainly would have had I been in the States. So I, I, I missed that. But I felt I was there, too. Jerry Burns um, had a a publishing company called Goliard's Press, and he published a couple of anthologies of poetry that I collected. And he would send me eight hours every week of KSAN broadcasts. KSAN came about uh, uh, originally through KMPX, a station run by Tom Donahue, Uh, And they went on strike, and they took most of the staff to KSAN and they took it over as a freeform radio station, the likes of which had never been heard AM or FM in American history. And the jocks would bring their own collections in. You could listen to B.B. King and come out into uh, Leonard Cohen and Janice. And the Grateful Dead would come in with the tapes from last night's show at the Fillmore and take over the station for three hours and just play the whole show live. Uh, and so Jerry Burns would tape it, usually on Monday from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., and get in the car and immediately drive from his home in Berkeley to the Oakland Army base and get it in the mail before 5 o'clock. And Wednesday morning, I would have that tape in Saigon. And this mm-hmm. went on for 25 months. Wow. Uh, so I got a couple of hundred hours of these historic tapes. And when when history was happening, it wasn't just Monday morning tapes that he would send. He sent the whole... A set of tapes from the time Bobby Kennedy was shot until the time he died. So you were going through that and he would leave all everything intact, all the PSAs and the, the, the funny ads for, you know, wacky shoe stores on Fillmore street. And um, you you got such a sense of what was going on in the States and getting the real news from a man named Scoop Nisker who put together sign theater style, multiple, uh comments and and actualities and and great music and Kitty records and yeah uh, he, he went and covered all the the great demonstrations going on in berkeley and oakland and san francisco and you really got a sense of what was happening in the real world through those case and tapes so i they were on um a reel to reel mono so i had four two-hour tracks on those tapes and as soon as they arrived, I started making cassettes off the reel-to-reel and gave it to guys going out into the field so that they could have a sense of what was true and what was propaganda in Stars and Stripes.
0: Interesting. Now, n- not to, to jump topics here, but you mentioned you know, heading to Marrakesh in 1970, and then you also mentioned the doors and the passing of Jim Morrison and that there was a story there.
2: <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Well, it it starts in New York at the end of each. I was on the road from September to May in a different city each week reading poetry in schools. And at the end of each tour, I would arrive back in New York and um, go to this rare bookstore on 43rd Street um, that bought E.E. E. Cummings estate when he died, when his wife died. And I would treat myself to an autographed first edition or a painting that he did. He was an artist, and uh, he did some really interesting watercolors. I have a few of those. And um, at at the end of my tour in in 1970, when when I was speaking against the war, um, I went to to the store, the Gotham Book Mart, and Andy Brown, who had just bought the the store. Um, I said, I, I don't know when I'm going to see you again, but um, I'm, I'm going over to, uh, to live in the south of France. And he said, why? I said, well, I want to learn to speak French. I want to live in a warm place. And he said, well, you have any idea how expensive it is there? He says, I just came back from Marrakech, and I bought a huge uh, rare book collection from the Countess de Brataille. And uh, you could live there for about 20% of what it would cost to live on the Riviera. And the food is great, and it's warm. And I'll give you a letter of introduction to the Countess. So that happened, and we became, I was with my first wife, who was a war correspondent I met on the island of the Coconut Monk in the middle of the Mekong River. That's another story. And <laughs> so, <laughs> We we looked the countess up as soon as we got there and we became very dear friends, whether she lived in a 40-room palace with the biggest private cactus garden in North Africa, her late husband, the Count de Britaille, uh, one of the richest men in the world, uh, owned all the Francophone newspapers in French colonial Africa. And she had a son who was about to turn 21 and inherit the title, and he was off um, in, in school um, in the States. And a couple of months after we got there, this would have been early July of, of 1970. Uh, she sent one of her servants over to our house in the Medina and said, uh, uh, Jean de Brottay has just come home and he wants to meet you and, uh, please come to dinner tonight. And we get over there and he's, he's a very interesting looking guy, very scrawny blonde with a a kind of double bend in his nose. He looked like some Renaissance painting. And in tow with him was Marianne Faithful.
0: Oh, gosh.
2: And they proceed to tell us that they had just fled to Marrakesh because uh, the day before that, this was on a Monday, and the the Saturday night, Sunday morning, they were in Paris when uh, an old girlfriend of the Count, Uh, Pamela Corson, who was Morrison's girlfriend, called them up and said, Jim's in the bathroom, the door is locked, I can't get it open, come over and help me. And As they're telling me this story, um, they broke down the door and there was Jim Purple in the bathtub. Um, What they didn't tell me was that it was Jean de Bretagne, most likely, who supplied the heroin that killed him. And... Mm -hmm. So this is now on a Monday. Tuesday, I'm looking at the International Herald Tribune, as expats do, and there's not, nothing in there about the death of Jim Morrison. Wednesday, nothing about the death. And I'm beginning to think this is this is a hallucination. The two of them are spaced out on heavy drugs, and uh, they, that this can't be true. How can they keep this secret for so long? Finally, Thursday, the news breaks, and he's already buried in Père Lachaise by that point. So I'm in a lot of the books because of that. Jim uh, John Densmore was on my Sound of the 60s radio show on KCRW here in L.A. back in the 80s. And I, I I told him that story and he asked if he could reprint it in the book he wrote about Jim and the Doors. Um, so it's, it's just a sad, sad story.
0: Did you believe their account of what happened?
2: Not until I read the obit.
0: Because if he was the one that supplied the heroin.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that that was made up. But how how could I know at that how time? Did you
0: know, yeah. it was also said that he was the one that supplied Janis Joplin with the heroin yeah. when she overdosed. I believe yeah. same guy. What a
1: waste. When the music's over, when the music's over.
0: But I know also, too, and correct me if I'm wrong, you may have been at Altamont or almost went to Altamont. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> we got within seven miles and the highway turned it into a parking lot. And I was with uh, an ex-nun friend of mine and a couple, Jerry Burns and and Jean Fowler and my first wife. And we just couldn't face a seven-mile walk. And at the last possible moment, we turned around and, and headed back to the city. So I almost was there. It was the week I got out of the Army.
0: Oh, my goodness. And then you're hearing accounts on the radio of what transpired at this concert. I'm sure you felt it was a bit of a blessing. Thank
2: you, Lord. Because <laughs> I know I would have tried to get right down in front of the stage. You yeah.
0: right in the line of fire.
2: Yeah, I, I, precisely.
0: And speaking of the Rolling Stones, I know, and I know I'm I'm, I'm almost kind of segueing into... Um, uh, reggae here, but before we dive in completely, you did work with Keith Richards on an album.
2: Uh, yeah, a, a beautiful box set, uh, the $250 version of which is in a wooden box with a, a drawing that he did. Um, yeah, Wingless Angels. He he, They did Goat's Head Soup. Um, what was that? 72, 73? in in jamaica and keith fell in love with it and bought a house near ocho rios on the north coast and he used to hang out uh down on the water's edge with a bunch of fishermen and there was a guy there the justin the fisherman and there was a sister this and ross that and uh he he hit a vibe with these guys and uh invited them back to his house and they got so close that they finally moved the sacred Nyabingi drums of the village into his home for safekeeping and uh, they would they would jam all day long and he finally started recording these sessions and he made a a rather crude album Um, uh, I think most of it was recorded on a cassette called Wingless Angels and then he wanted to go into a studio with them years later because this was the last vestige of that pure Africa-influenced music that became the basis of reggae. And uh, he he hired a studio not far away from there, and they recorded a bunch of things. And he wanted to uh, have a video to go with this special package. And he asked if he could come here to the archives and, and film something here. And that was a day I'll, I'll never forget. That was pretty off the wall. We had a rider with all the things that had to be here for him. You know, bottle of Stoli, uh, uh, rolling papers, and uh, a six-pack, uh, I think it was Red Stripe, and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, things that would, would make him happy. <laughs> and,
0: uh, <laughs> and how is he, uh, as a person, working with him?
2: Well, I, at one point he got overwhelmed as I was taking him through the archives. And uh, he, he had to go cool out in, in our son's bedroom. Uh, we, we were vetted early in the morning by Jane Rose, his manager, and his bodyguard, who also worked for Yoko Ono. Oh, and they had to come and check the house out and make sure it was Keithable. And uh, so he, he ran off to to cool out in our son Devin's room for a while. And then he came back down and we filmed a, uh, about a 45-minute interview.
0: Overwhelmed by all the memorabilia and everything? Yeah, yeah. What year was this?
2: Um, I think it was twenty eleven.
0: Twenty eleven. Yeah. It's blurry. Well, that's probably a good segue. I did want to talk about your reggae. I mean, how could we not? You know, and and I mentioned it, you know, in the uh, in the intro to the episode. But you are the leading historian. Of all things, reggae, Bob Marley, you have or had, I think it's now a different house, but she had six rooms in your home. How many? Seven Seven, Seven rooms in your home devoted to um, reggae memorabilia. Bob Marley. What was it about reggae? What was it about Bob Marley?
2: Well, being so interested in poetry all my life, you know, poetry, poems are the best way to say things with words. And I I ran across uh, a quote from Baudrillard, uh, which sounds terribly pretentious to say, and I don't mean it to, (laughs) but it's such a good quote. Baudrillard said, poeticism is language's insurrection against its own rules. Isn't that nice? Yeah. yeah, and so I, I I love language, and you can feel language when it's right in your mouth. As an actor, I'm always looking for the best thing to to say in the best way. And so it was in 1973 uh, that I discovered Bob Marley and Catch a Fire, his first major international album, through an article in Rolling Stone by Michael Thomas uh, uh, from Australia. He wrote a piece in Rolling Stone that said. Um, reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. (sighs) That thrust me out of the house in Berkeley to find Catch a Fire. And the next night I saw The Harder They Come in a tiny theater on the north side of campus. And when the bong scene came on, everybody in the theater lit up there was so much smoke couldn't see the screen another way home i bought the soundtrack and my life changed forever but it was hearing the language of bob's poetry that attracted me even more than the beat of the music the secret of reggae is that it is the beat of the healthy human heart at rest oh. and so it's what the babies hear in the womb and that's why they and dogs respond to it so strongly. Um, and that article introduced reggae to to North America and uh, changed my life. So mm. hearing my wife's favorite song is uh, Concrete Jungle, which opens that album. And it was groundbreaking because it opens with a lead guitar. And up until that point in reggae music, there was no lead guitar. Mm. So that was a Chris Blackwell innovation on the overdubs he did with the original tracks that he got for Catch a Fire. So, And it was rebellious. I love doo-wop. We didn't get into my 50s background at all. I have so many stories from the 50s. And Alan Freed, I met him several times. I wanted oh, to be Alan Freed when I grew up.
0: We and have to talk about these. We have to
2: talk about that, yeah. So um, it, it was the the harmonies of doo-wop combined with the folk and, and Dylan-esque music of the 60s, the, the protest music of the 60s, with a spiritual overlay calling you to a higher consciousness irieites literally means higher heights mm. that that took my breath away and then i uh, living in berkeley i had access to a lot of imports at uh sure. power records and other places and uh, there were anthologies of jamaican albums uh, filled with 60s recordings and I learned very quickly that not all of reggae was transcendently beautiful. That there was an awful lot of crap there that you had to separate the wheat from the chaff. And there there was a, a reggae record store on Fillmore Street in San Francisco in 1973, run by Ruel Mills, who was an old spar of Bob's from Trenchtown. And he he didn't have a lot of records, but whatever he had was just pristine and perfect. And you'd buy this stuff just for the names, Ross Michael and the Sons of Negus and uh, Count Ossie and the Mystic Revelation of Rastafari. Uh, and when
0: you say it with your radio voice, I mean, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: you get sucked in.
2: He is sucked in, and and when we got to know each other, he would bring me into the back room where he had other things for sale, and <laughs> would partake and listen, and he'd explain the history of each of these artists to us. So, for a lot of people, Duppy Doug went, and Lance Linares, and I—we're the West Coast Three. Um, that was our early education, right from Trenchtown, and we owe this man a, a great deal of thanks after all these years.
1: I don't want to first time.
0: You have a great story about meeting Bob Marley the first time.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's in yeah. Big
0: Sur, I believe.
2: Yeah, I had been hired in, six, in 78 by a couple of Hollywood screenwriters uh, to novelize two screenplays. And we rented a cabin on a mountaintop in Palo, Colorado Canyon, looked a mile down the canyon into the ocean. And boy, uh, talk about a creative summer. I wrote two novels in three months. And oh, in my the middle God. of that summer, we learned that Bob was coming to Santa Cruz to do two shows in one night. So we got tickets for both of them. And when we got there really early, uh, there was a guy handing out um, handing out posters advertising a show three nights later at um, the Greek Theater in Berkeley. But anyhow, we went to the show, and I got this poster under my arm, and we walk into the hall, and uh, it, it's like a high school gym. There's There's bleachers on three sides and a very low stage, maybe just three feet high. And in the middle of the dance floor is a soundboard. And there was a tall, skinny, light-skinned guy with a couple of dread sprouts starting to come out of his head. And I figured he had something to do with the whalers. So I walked up and I said, excuse me, sir, are you going to do Waiting in Vain tonight? And he looks at me kind of funny and he says, why? And I said, oh, man, that's my favorite Bob Marley song, especially that incredible lead guitar line that, that Junior Marvin plays. And he says, you want to meet Bob? Well, yeah. Yeah. and I bring my wife? He says sure. So we go walking down this long corridor to get backstage and he says, "What's your name?" he says, and I said, "I'm I'm Roger, this is my wife Mary." He says, "Hi, I'm Junior Marvin." Oh. My
0: God.
2: So I said the right thing to the right guy at the right time. And we go in the back room and there're four big cafeteria tables pushed together to make a gigantic table. And everybody is this far from everybody else. And nobody's saying anything to anybody. The whole band is around the table, and Bob. And each of them has a, a mound of herb in front of them and a pack <laughs> of rolling papers. And it's dead silent. So Junior sees the poster and he says, why don't you ask Bob to sign your poster? I go, oh, oh right, right. <laughs> so he did, I mean, I was speechless. And he takes me around the table to the other side and, Bob is in the chair like this, and he's well in the heights. heights. I go up, and uh, I I said, Bob, uh, are you going to do Waiting in Vain tonight? And he looks up, and he goes, "Uh, uh, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But he never did it live because the I-3 wouldn't sing it behind him because they thought it was about Cindy Breakspear, his mistress at the time, Damien Marley's mother. So his greatest song never got performed live, maybe once.
0: Is it about her?
2: No, he didn't even write it. It was uh, written by Tyrone Downey, one of his keyboard players.
0: So where did that misunderstanding come from?
2: The lyrics. It's been three years. I've been waiting on your line. He'd been living in the same building with her for three years. A tough gong. and Yeah, I mean.
0: Really? So out of an allegiance to Rita, they just vetoed it?
2: Well, Rita and Judy wouldn't sing it. Uh, Judy stood out with Rita and you know the, here's another great great piece of trivia for you the album of the century is exodus by bob marley according to time magazine the i3 don't sing on it it's marcia griffith's triple tracked doing all three voices really yeah that's in my new book my latest book i shouldn't say new it's not new anymore but this is so much things to say the oral history of bob marley so this A lot of things in this book that have never appeared in print before. And a lot of people who never talked to a reporter before finally agreed to talk to me.
0: I'm in the midst of reading that right now. How
2: are you? There is
0: so much. I'm about halfway through. Are are
2: you up to the shooting yet?
0: Not up to the shooting yet. But you know what's interesting is I had Jim Birkenstadt on my show here and he's the rock and roll detective. And he did a book on some of the greatest rock and roll myths. And one was on the shooting of Bob, Marley, the assassination attempt on Bob Marley and was the CIA really involved? Yes. And, and Jim is a, he's a lawyer. And I mean, he, he really went to town and getting his facts straight and definitively being able to answer yes or no. And I'm I sure. he
2: came up with no.
0: Oh, you know he did. Very much so and substantial evidence no to back everything up. Oh, great guy. You guys would get along fabulously. Yeah. But I read this chapter and we talk about it in the episode um it was fascinating. I mean the way he was he was able to pull documents from the CIA assassin's handbook and the certain tenets you had to adhere to and that these assassins adhered to none of them. You know, these right. were teenage kids just shooting blindly. Right.
2: Yeah, the, the the greatest proof of the fact that the CIA wasn't involved in it is that Bob survived. Right. They don't leave until they get their man. And this was a point blank shooting of Bob that came right across his heart and the bullet lodged in his arm and he went to the grave with the bullet in him.
0: He went to the grave with that bullet because he was afraid that if it was dislodged, he wouldn't be able to play play guitar or what, what in the world?
2: I don't know about that. Oh. I, I don't know.
0: That that whole story to me is absolutely incredible. And he had some sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Vision. Premonition.
2: Vision. Three nights before, he had a dream or a vision of his mother as the object of assassins. And when she, the assassins came for her, she froze and the bullets just missed her. And when the guy turned to shoot Bob, he remembered that. And in the vision, his mother said, don't run, don't run, twice. Don't run, don't run. We we played that interview clip that he did with Gil Noble in 1980 uh, at the Bob Marley exhibition that I just spent five months working at. There's a,
0: I want to touch on that.
2: I, I did 65 Life of Bob Marley talks in five months. Uh, at the uh, Bob Marley One Love Experience that Jonathan Shank created. It started in London, then went to Toronto, and and was here for five months in Hollywood. Uh, 15,000 square foot immersive exhibition, and I led two tours on Saturday and two on Sunday all through the exhibition, telling Bob's life story, telling the true story of Bob's life.
0: If I had known that you were doing those tours... I would have come because, you know, I was there on the opening night and we must have been like ships passing in the night. I was there at the the One Love Experience at Ovation on the corner of Hollywood and Highland. Oh, no, kidding. Oh, yeah. Harvey told me about it. I saw Henry Gilts there and a few other people. Um, and I just walked the entire exhibit by myself, just checking everything out.
2: Well, you could have come and see the archives.
0: I would love to see the archives. Speaking of which, for people that are listening, I mean, you have several rooms of archives and memorabilia. I I can't even imagine the undertaking of collecting all this stuff and retaining it.
2: (laughs) We're retaining. That's the the trick. (laughs) We've had to move twice just to house the collection.
0: And what is it you're ultimately hoping to do with the collection?
2: Well, it, it's nearing uh, its ultimate destination. Um, I've turned down huge offers over the past 30 years, 35 years, um, because they they didn't a- agree with my my basic needs. It has to be kept intact forever. Mm-hmm. It has to be made available to the public. By, by and respecting all the artist rights and until i could find someone who wanted to do that i had to turn people down but a man named joe Bogdanovich, who i've known for about 40 years he used to be a huge fan of the reggae beat show on kcrw that i did with hank holmes um he um very interesting guy his grandfather founded starkist tuna oh and he had four grandsons. And when he died, he left each of them half a billion dollars. That's billion with a B. <laughs> and Joe has invested a great deal of that fortune in Jamaica. First, he did he, he bought the Sting Festival, which had a history of violence and misogyny and homophobia, and cleaned it up. And it's bigger than ever. And then he bought Sunfest, which was the successor to SunSplash. And he has bought my archives four years ago, and he's been waiting to conclude a deal for a lease on land adjacent to the place where Sun, uh, Sunfest is held to build a museum for my archives. And the lease is owned by the Jamaican government, and they've been delaying and delaying and delaying for four years, and it's getting really It's making me very upset because I'm going to be 81. How how many good years do I have left to guide this whole project to completion? So we're hoping that soon we will have a a deal signed and we can start building.
0: Do you know what the delay is for or is it just government? I mean, it's just to be expected.
2: It's the Caribbean.
0: Yes. Got it.
2: Got it. With all that implies.
0: Yes. All right. Now that makes total sense.
2: Yeah. And no sense whatsoever. He's going to give him a museum that's going to draw thousands of people a year to tourist the- dollars. Jamaica and yeah. From all over the world, they're going to come and see this. Any, you know, in Jamaica, anything older than five years doesn't matter. It's as if it never happened. You know, you talk to a young person in Jamaica and say, Peter Tosh, they'll look at you blankly and go, Who's that?
0: You've got to be kidding me. This is their heritage. Peter Tosh.
2: Taylor is grandpa's music. Bob Marley, well, he's in a different class.
0: Globally, Bob Marley is known.
2: I was, yeah. I was interviewed by, by Phil Kogan a few years ago, the guy who created The Amazing Race. Yep. And he wanted to talk to me, he said, because he'd been to 130 countries. And in every single country he's been to, he's found evidence of Bob Marley he wanted to know why that's it's it's up on youtube it's uh, bucket 21
0: <laughs> he wanted to know why and do you think it's because okay you've got this beat that is you know so central to the human anatomy you even say but his words are so universal um they preach love but you know in the way that You know, John Lennon's words, I think, resonated to a degree with certain songs like Imagine, you know, um, Instant Karma.
2: All you need is love.
0: All you need is love. One love. Exactly. Which is really um, a testament to Bob Marley considering his upbringing, which I didn't know was as rough as it was. And that you are faced when you are handed a childhood like that, faced with two different paths. You can go down the path of essentially this straight and narrow and saying, I'm not going to live this way, or you can go down a very dark one.
2: Just to survive.
0: Just to survive. It was a
2: half-caste, so both races had no use for him. Even when uh, Bunny Whaler's father brought Bob's mother to Kingston and lived with, with her in his house, he wouldn't let Bob sleep in the house. He slept in the dirt and the mud under the foundation of the house.
0: That's heartbreaking.
2: And and it, well, what it, and I talked about this in my, in my lectures. Uh, it gave him an empathy for the sufferers. He was an abandoned child, as you read, between five and seven years of age. And he could have turned into a pickpocket or worse. And he didn't. It gave him that empathy for people who were born into a situation or an accident of birth through no fault of their own and gave them hope. And that's what his music was all about and uh, you know he, his his music will never die no the last talk i gave was on uh, may 20th and i checked billboard that week and the number one reggae album on the billboard reggae chart was legend which came out 39 years ago so that that's and and for me the greatest part of being able to conduct those those talks with the the people who came was that over 50% of all the people who came to the exhibition were black Americans? And that was the audience that was impervious to Bob. A lot of black music stations never played a note of Bob till the day he died. Why? And, um, 1970s, Slystone, Glam Glam RB, fur coats, bling. They don't want to hear about going back to Africa. No. That, that wasn't their message. They didn't want any part of that. And they were all doped up on cocaine.
0: Yeah, they sure
2: were. Smoking herb.
0: Okay, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to part one of our discussion. And, of course, a big thank you to Roger as well. Now, next week, you can check out part two of our episode where we discuss his reggae show, Reggae Beat, on KCRW. I'm sure many of you listen to it. It actually became the most popular non-commercial radio show in L.A., according to the Nielsen ratings. We're also going to talk about Alan Freed and his love of 1950s rock and roll, LSD, and an unforgettable trip to Jamaica where he was nearly pickpocketed by a well-known reggae star. Now, he won't say who. Maybe you can figure it out. I don't know. But again, thank you for listening, and we will see you back here next week for part two.